Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. We come to God's Word after the cup, after the table, because it is Jesus' broken body and shed blood that secures for us forgiveness and cleansing. And so we don't come to the Bible as a book of rules. We don't come to the Bible as a way of earning God's affection. We come with grateful hearts knowing God has already poured out his love on us in Jesus Christ. And so we can come with joy to his word. Uh, And so today on this Love Sunday, this fourth Sunday of Advent, we turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Some of y'all got this memorized, so you can just recite it along with Terry as he reads. I'm going to invite Terry to come and read the scripture this morning. Thank you. Good morning. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face, now I know in part. But then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. Chances are last time you heard that was at a wedding or some like sentimental event. Um, And we we approach this this text so often as like, it's really nice. It sounds really sweet until you actually dig into it. And then you're like, holy crap, that's hard. So that's where we're going to be today. First Corinthians 13. The phrase love is love is kind of everywhere right now. I don't know if you've seen this everywhere, but I have. Like, it seems like everywhere I go, the phrase love is love. And, and what the phrase love is love is usually meant to, to connote or to say is who you love is who you love. And love is the same no matter who it's between. And, and the problem is that the way that this is usually gets used is, is what they really mean is affection is affection. Or Worse, attraction is attraction. Who you're attracted to is who you're attracted to, and that's that. Who you feel affection for is who you feel affection for, and that's that. Love is love. Doesn't matter who it's between. And I would totally agree. Love is love, no matter who it's between. But the way that it's popularly defined is so much less and weaker than God ever intended. Affection, attraction, 
feelings of love, feelings of affection for someone, these are not what God intends when he talks about love. And so we come to this definition of love today in 1 Corinthians 13. And again, when you take it out of context and you use it in a sentimental environment, it's easy to use that same definition for love here. Love as affection. Love as the people you care about. Love as the people you feel warm feelings toward. But then we look at the context and we realize the people that Paul is talking to here, the people that, that God is talking to through the apostle here, they don't love each other at all. Right? This, is, this is the letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a, uh, a port town. Corinth was a melting pot of cultures. Corinth was a town where the world came together. And Corinth was a town of pagan temples, of many different religions and backgrounds. Corinth was a town with a large Jewish population. And you got all these cultures clashing. And then in comes the Apostle Paul preaching the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Terry. Preaching the good news of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jews and pagans alike are going, wait a minute, like, this sounds good. This sounds true. I believe Jesus is the king of all things. And so they start following Jesus together. Only the problem is they're from all these different places and backgrounds and cultures and ideas. And they get into this church. They get into these people's homes and gathering as a church. And they, they still live according to their old cultures. They haven't fully embraced, fully assimilated together. They, they don't know what it means to live for Jesus together as a community. And so they're bringing in all their old baggage. And when we all bring in our baggage, the room gets full really quick. And people start bumping into each other. And they start hurting each other. And that's what happens in Corinth. The church members are hurting each other. There's, there's one particular incident that Paul talks about earlier in the, chat, in the book or in the letter that's really bad, right? Paul uses this as an example for the rest of the church. He says, you got a guy there sleeping with his stepmom, and nobody's saying boo about it. And that's a problem. Like, that doesn't happen among the pagans. You realize that, right? Like, you're here in the church following Jesus, and you got people living like isn't even heard of outside of the church. And no one's saying a thing about it. This is damaging your community. But then he goes on, and he levels even worse allegations against them, because that's an isolated incident, right? But then he goes on to talk about how they're taking communion together. You see, when the church would gather here, they would have a meal together. And the communion celebration would be part of this meal. And so when they come to the table to have this meal together, they give the rich people the best places and the poor people the worst places. And the right ethnicity is the best places and the worst ethnicity is the worst places. And they segregate. And everybody's bringing their own food. This isn't a potluck, right? We do a potluck. Everybody brings their meal and shares with everybody else. No, no. Here, they don't have like one common table where there's like one meal prepared. Everybody's bringing their own dishes and their own food. So the rich people sitting at the nice parts of the table have all the best food. And the poor people at the other end of the table get nothing or very little. And their practice of communion, the thing that's supposed to unify them as a body, supposed to bring them together. This is supposed to be Arthur's round table before that existed, right? This is supposed to be the place where everybody is equal in Christ, is a place where, where segregation is happening, is a place where certain people are honored because they bring more to the table, literally bring more to the table, than others. 
And then Paul goes on to say, and then beyond that, beyond just like privileging people based on their wealth or their station in life, which they were born into and could not help, beyond that, now you're privileging people also based on the spiritual gifts that they bring. So everything in the Corinthian church was about the value that you could bring to the church. People who brought more value were more honored, their voices were heard. People who brought less value in terms of their gifts and their serving ability, in terms of their money, in terms of their status in society, they got the short end of the stick and weren't cared for, weren't loved. And Paul says, this is a damnable practice among you. Paul makes, Paul does not mince words when he's talking about their practice of communion. It is evil, period. Like this practice of, of honoring some and dishonoring others and giving the best places to the wealthy and, and not giving place to the, to the poor and then, and then upholding certain spiritual gifts or abilities or talents above others. This is evil. This is not what God wants. This is not what Jesus has saved his community for. This is not the way. And so you've got all these people pursuing their own selfish ambition you know, these people who are honoring some and dishonoring others based on arbitrary things, based on things that ultimately don't matter, and it's to this community that the Apostle Paul writes the love chapter. Right? These are not two people looking their best, starry-eyed over each other, swearing to be loyal to each other for the rest of their lives. Right? This is not a wedding. Right? This is not a place where people feel great affection for each other. And Paul writes this to them. And that's how we have to read it. Like, that's how we have to understand it. This is not sentimental. This is hard, hard instruction from the apostle to a people who don't particularly like each other, but are bound together by Jesus. And so that's where we begin. We hold that in our minds, and then we read Paul say in 13, 1 to 3, if I speak human or angelic tongues but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Here's what Paul is saying. We're going to condense that down into something that's actually going to hit us hard. If I don't love, I'm worthless. And if I don't love, I gain nothing. That's exactly what he just said. If I don't have love, I am nothing. The only contribution to the community that matters according to Paul here is love for one another. Not the wealth you bring, not the social status you bring, not what kind of food you bring to the potluck. What matters is your love for one another. And if I am living my life without love, it is meaningless. There's no two ways around that. That's what he says. And in this context, he doesn't mean if I'm not living my life with affection for the people I like, if I'm not living my life with adoration for the people that I actually admire. He's talking about if I don't love 
the people that it's not natural for me to love. If I don't love the people I'm in this community with who have no natural call on my affection, who have no, I have no reason to love other than being part of this body, if I don't love my enemies in this body, my life is meaningless. And it challenges us on a whole new level. So we got to ask, what, what is this love? Clearly, our cultural definition of love as affection is not going to cut it here. Because what do I do for the people I don't feel affection for? Clearly, the popular definition of love as, as just merely admiring another person or affirming who they are is not going to cut it. When I'm faced in a family community with people who I have no reason to love or feel affection for, it's not going to work. So how do we even define this? Well, first, it's, it's a little easy because Paul uses a special word for love here. English is a word of 750,000 poor words, right? We're a language, we have 750,000 words, and yet our language can be so impoverished because we only have one word for love, and cultures and languages around the world have more than one word for love, and Greek did. Paul is writing in Greek, in case you didn't know. And so there are four words for love generally in the New Testament. There's, uh, there's phileo, brotherly love, the kind of love that I would feel for someone I choose to love, a, a compatriot. There's storge, which is a general kind of affection that I might feel for my country or for my people. There's eros, which is a, an erotic love. We get eroticism from that word, eros. It's a burning love. It's an it's a attraction, a lust, a desire. And then there's agape. And agape is... Uh, all-encompassing. It's the kind of love that a parent has for a child. It's, it's an unbiased, unbreaking kind of love. It is an unconditional kind of love you'll hear agape called. Agape is God's love. Only even that word needs definition. Paul's not content to just use that word and assume people know what he's talking about. Because remember, in Corinth, you got people from all kinds of backgrounds. And most of them speak Greek because that's the language, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. That's the language that people would speak. And so he's writing in Greek to a people for this letter to be read before the people. And he's not going to leave anything to chance. He's not going to say what the Scythian thinks love means is not necessarily what the Jew thinks love means, which is not necessarily what the Roman thinks love means. And so he's going to clarify for us here. And listen carefully. Reflect on this. As Paul says now, I'm going to define love. If I'm telling you life is meaningless without love, here's what I mean when I say love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that list sounds really nice as long as it is what I expect other people to do to me. But the moment 
that I hold myself to this standard, I start making excuses. Well, I was really tired, so I got irritable and rude. Well, you just don't understand the struggle that I'm going through right now. Well, I'm in the stage of life where it is all about me and my future and my path, and I've got to figure it out. Well, well, well. You see, this, this standard of love is great as long as we're thinking this is God's love to us or this is what I can expect from people who say they love me. But the very moment that I start holding myself to this standard, I realize I got a problem. I got a big problem. When was the last time you were impatient or unkind? When was the last time you were envious or boastful? When was the last time that you rejoiced in an unrighteousness done to someone else because you didn't particularly like them? When was the last time we broke this vision of love? Chances are it happened this morning and every day of our lives. This is a hard standard. But this is how Paul defines love. This is the love that Paul says, without my life is meaningless. This is the love I received, and in Christ, the love that I am called to give. And here's another aspect to this. If you're one of these selfish Corinthians, one of the wealthy ones who's been honored and brings the best food and who is loved and admired in the community because of all that you bring, or you're one of the people who has the gift of prophecy and you can stand up and you can speak God's truth and so people honor you for that. If you're one of these people in the community who's admired and held up on a pedestal, living this way means giving that up. He's writing to a Corinthian community and he's writing to the people with the most admiration and power and saying, loving like Christ will necessarily mean giving up all of your advantage to raise up others. It'll mean giving up your self-centeredness, giving of your wealth, giving of that food. It'll mean using that gift God gave you to build up the community rather than your own name. Loving like this is costly. Love in this case is generosity toward the people I despise. And that will cost me. The Christian life is not a path toward wealth and toward enjoyment of life un unbounded. The Christian life is not one that is uncostly where God just gives to us and gives to us and gives to us, and it's all about me and building up my name and my empire and my world. Christian love gives of itself sacrificially, and it costs us. And so it doesn't always benefit us in the way that we would want to. Now, the counter to that is that it benefits us in so many other ways that are so much more important. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the gifts of God to his people. 
These are the advantages we gain when we follow Jesus and we're formed and shaped into his likeness. But material wealth, advantage in society, the admiration of people, these are not the goals of Christian people. And to these people in this Corinthian church who read the definition of love and go, wait a minute, what do I get out of this deal? Paul goes on. So if you're wondering, what do I get out of this? If I live this way, it's going to mean giving up of a lot of stuff and a lot of my power and a lot of my admiration and a lot of my ambition. If I live according to this way, it will not benefit me. And so Paul goes on to answer that exact question. By beginning in verse 8, love never ends. And he has three examples here. As for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. And then he elaborates. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And Paul's playing on that same idea here by saying all that stuff that you hope to gain in wealth and status All that stuff that you can hold on to by your own power will go away. It will not benefit you in eternity. It will not benefit you in the end. It is good for the here and now alone. But love is eternal. Love never ends. Love is superior to all of those things. Love is why we live It is the reason we exist. God in his love overflowed and created us to be loved. God in his love exists as a community in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in his love sent Jesus to us to unite us to himself. Love is the eternal bond that exists between God and his people. Love doesn't die and it can't be burned and it doesn't get trashed by natural disasters and it doesn't get taken away with our community love remains forever it is the only thing worth holding on to for eternity and so if you're worried about your gains in the here and now and how living a life of love may impact my gains in this life you don't really know love you haven't understood the eternal impact of love. You haven't understood the eternal gains of love. You have not understood God. If we are worried about living in this world and playing with our mud pies and enjoying our baubles and our things and afraid to give them up for the sake of love, then we have not understood what love is. We have not understood the grace of Christ in coming to love us. We have not understood our self-giving, sacrificial God. To give up status for me, to give up finances, to give up things 
even to give up my security for the sake of love is to walk only the tenth part of the road that Jesus did. Whatever sacrifices I make in this life for the sake of love is only a fraction of what God has already done for me in Jesus. The eternal God who lives and reigns in glory, the eternal God who owns all that there is, the eternal God who is praised, who is worshipped 24-7 by creatures immeasurably greater than me, said, I love them so much that I'll step away from this throne. I will step out of this glory. I will step away from my best place at the table. I will give up my eternally great meals. I will step down from the head of this table and go to the other end to my poor brothers and sisters. I will go to my brothers and sisters and my enemies. And I will lay down everything for them. I will come and I will be born as a baby to a poor family from an out-of-the-way place that no one cares about. And I will live and I will walk and I will teach them how to love. I will demonstrate for them what true love really is. I will teach them and I will build them up. And I will leave them a community to continue on as I go to a cross to bear their sin, to bear their offenses against God so that they can be free and empowered to love one another. And before he left, as Rick read earlier, Jesus gave us the new command that we would love one another. Now that wasn't what was new, but that we would love one another as Jesus has loved us. You see, in the church, sometimes we pick up on love God and love people, right? That, that's our mission. That's our goal. That's what we do. That's what the greatest commandments are, right? The teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? And Jesus asks him, what does Moses say? What's the, what's the law say? And the man answers, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we hold on to those things, and that's right, and that's good. But we miss, we miss that Jesus actually took that second part and he amplified it. He didn't leave it as love people like I love myself. Because here's the thing, I don't love myself very well sometimes. I don't love me as God loves me. I don't love Je me as Jesus loves me. And so Jesus comes to his followers and says, it's not enough that you would love people as yourself. My new command is that you would love people as I have loved you. With the love of Christ. That's the high standard according to which we live. That's our standard of love. And it's the only life worth living. It will be costly. But because love is eternal and supersedes all other things... It is worth it. It's the only thing we'll take with us. Faith, hope, and love. It's 
It's the only thing that we get to carry with us for all of eternity. Love is the only contribution to this community that really counts in the end. Love as Jesus has loved. Love as the character of Jesus on display right here in verses 4 to 7. It's patience. It's kindness. It's no envy. It's no boasting. It's no arrogance. No rudeness. No selfishness. Not irritable. Not keeping a record of wrongs. Finding no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoicing with the truth. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. This is the love that is to mark us as God's community. And it is only possible as we give ourselves to Jesus. It is only possible as Jesus then fills us with the Holy Spirit of God to motivate us and move us toward this vision of love. This is love that came to us. This is the love that we long for. But as Paul says here, right now, we look in a mirror dimly. Right now, we don't see clearly. Right now, we are children growing up into the image of Jesus. Right now, we are imperfect. And only on that last day when Jesus has come back, only when we truly see him face to face, will we understand the true depths of his love for us and the love that he has called us to. Only in that final day will we fully walk into and live in the love that Jesus has called us to. Until then, until then, we pursue Jesus and we pursue this vision of love as best we can by the power of God's Holy Spirit, bearing with and forgiving one another when we fail this vision of love. And we stop looking to others and holding them to this standard while giving ourselves a break. And we forgive ourselves and we forgive our neighbors. And then we hold up the character of Jesus and say, this is what we're pursuing. This is who we want to be. When people walk into this community, I would hope that after spending time here, quite apart from reading this text, they would go, those are a people who are patient, who are kind. They're not rude. They're not self-seeking. They loved me well. I pray that over this church family, over each of our families, over each of us individually. And I pray the grace of Christ when we fail it, because we will. That's what Jesus paid for. That's why Jesus died and rose again, to free us from the legalistic burden of holding this up as a checklist and to empower us to live this way as we grow in intimacy with him. Let love be your standard. Let this love be your guiding light. Let Jesus be your goal as he leads you into a life of love. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us into love. But not merely for calling us into love, for showing us what love is, for demonstrating in your birth and life and death and resurrection and ongoing reign, King Jesus, what true love really is. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people hungry and desirous 
to be people of love as you've defined it here, growing into the character of our King Jesus, giving grace where we fail and fall in the here and now, and longing for that day when we will see you clearly and know your love as we have never known it before, no longer with any barriers between us, no longer with any fog in our eyes, but clearly on display for us and clearly embracing us in your presence. God, would you give us the assurance of that love today, that we would know it, that we would know it deeply and long to live it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 